I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. On the show today is the photographer Michael Halsband, whose work I first saw in Surfbook, a collaborative project with legendary surfer Joel Tudor, examining surf culture through the people who built it. From there, I began exploring his extensive body of portraits of artists and musicians from Klaus Nomi and Bernice Abbott to David Byrne and James Brown. After studying photography at SVA, Michael got the chance to photograph Keith Richards for the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, after which he joined the Stones on their 1981 Tattoo You tour. Upon returning to New York, Michael made what was to become his most famous photograph, one that I imagine many of you have seen, the 1985 portrait of Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat, wearing boxing shorts and gloves, arms crossed, looking straight into camera against a clean white background. Originally created as a promotional poster for a collaborative show between the two artists, it became the iconic image of one of art's great partnerships. I got to sit down and have tea with Michael in the same studio where that photograph was made. And you can see my portrait of him there at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture, as well as on Instagram at williamjesslaird. Here I am with Michael Halsband. Michael Halsband, thanks for thanks for having me over. Hey, tea with Michael Halsband. Yeah, we're sitting in front of this very, <laughs> very ornate tea set. What, are you a big tea person? Is this? Uh, I, I'm, I I appreciate tea. Um, <laughs> I was over in um, in Hong Kong and in China printing a, a book I made called Surf Book, and it was um, at the end of a, a four year project. And I uh, had run into some technical problems with the book, mm-hmm. and so we uh, had to sort of stop the printing and go back to square one with separations and uh it took ended up taking a month uh and i ended up staying in hong kong a month in hong kong yeah that's not so bad no not at all it was incredible and uh in many ways but i had a lot of time on my hands because there was only a certain amount of time to actually have to prove the the work they were doing so i decided to venture out and I had this interest in tea, and I th- had this sort of romantic notion of tea shops or tea rooms or something in mm-hmm. in Hong Kong, and I started asking around, and, and nobody really knew uh, much about it. But this uh, this gentleman who worked in the hotel, um, he gave me a book, which was like a shopping guide to Hong Kong. And he said, maybe this can help you. And I started looking through it, and there were tons of tea shops. And I started to just circle them and make a map of where everything was. And then I kind of jumped into it. And little by little, people, I guess they felt that I had a greater interest than most people. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of um, started to teach me a little. Yeah, Yeah, teach me little bits and pieces at a time. I think that's a great way to, like, learn about a city, you know? Oh, yeah. It was a great way to learn about the culture. And and it's tea is so in, in ingrained or embedded in the culture. They're not even as aware of it mm-hmm. as you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's funny to them. Yeah, yeah, it's just tea, and yeah, we drink it. And then there's a whole level of uh, fanatics. Just like however deep you want to go, you'll find this smaller, you know, ever diminishing group of people, mm-hmm. or just you know more select group of passionate tea uh, people. Uh, well, this is very nice. You're individually, individually cleaning each cup. Yeah. <laughs> I've never, see, like, see, I, is this is? I feel like it'd be kind of typical, you know. No one would think about it, but over here, I mean, not much of a tea culture in New York. I don't think it's small. 
Is it like, really what are the small. places? Where do you go? Uh, I wouldn't say there's any place that I could um, point anybody in any direction. My friend, um, Sebastian Beckwith, is, um, has a company called In Pursuit of Tea. Mm-hmm. He's like a, uh, a tea hunter. Like, he's adventuring all over the place. And yeah. India, Bhutan, and China, and Japan, and um, always open to new frontiers, to tracking down tea growers or cultivators who are as passionate about it, not just for commercial purposes, Mm -hmm. but more like just uh, small batches or crops and and making... the best tea they can Super possibly grow. Yeah. God, I don't know. It kind of, sometimes uh, it feels like I have a ha- handle on how to get the tea I like mm-hmm. and uh, through either Sebastian or, uh, but it's, um, there is a Japanese tea room um, and I, I forget the name of it. It's on 39th Street. I've this heard, is bad. Uh, I'm wasting time here. No, it's cool. But, I, I've heard the best place to drink tea in New York is in Hiroshi Sugimoto's studio. <laughs> so, so have I. Although, how do you get there? That is like... <laughs> Hiroshi, if yeah. Hiroshi's listening, please invite us for tea. Yeah, That'd exactly. Uh, no, I hear the same thing. He's He's into Japanese tea and he's built, from what I've seen only in pictures, an actual tea room, uh, like a tea house in his studio yeah it's amazing yeah that studio is unbelievable oh really i mean i i think he uh I'm, i haven't been I, same for the only pictures but yeah i think he designs it himself too because yeah, he does architecture he now he's uh quite talented in so many ways um as an artist um he's but his uh interior design and uh and now i think he's also building making buildings and things yeah. but um yeah that's he that's a whole other world on my, I'm into Chinese tea, so Chinese tea is very, uh, I don't know, there's not as much of a ritual around it. Also, that the Chinese way of making tea is very practical. It's, it's more f- just functional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's well thought out in terms of heating up all the vessels with the water and then just making micro-brewing tea by little cups, by almost like sip at a time. And that's all it really breaks down to. There's nothing sort of like... Util- utilitarian otherwise. yeah yeah it's stripped down are we are we waiting for water to hit a temperature no the water's ready i'm just grabbing a, a, some uh, some of my favorite tea what are we drinking we are drinking it's a high mountain wulong it's a cliff tea from wuli which is in the sort of northeast like new england like area of mm-hmm. china <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to imagine there's such a place <laughs> yeah right maybe yeah I think that's it. I haven't been there. I've, I've always dreamed of going there, but uh, it's really special. And we are having like the end of this little bag. It's a varietal from there that I immediately fell in love with um, from the first moment somebody made some for me. It's a kind of a like almost cocoa or something. Uh, it has this really sweetness to it, sweet and earthiness to it that I, I'm always trying to pinpoint. Can't ever really nail it um is this a new one for you or this is an old old faithful old favorite um hard do you have to this get. first over there yeah discovered it over there and then um it, hard to track down it's not a um a known as it, it's a popular tea in china hard to hard to get it even there i'm honored yeah it should be <laughs> <laughs> good way to have a conversation 
even though it's a little distracting, which no, may be good. Right. You know, who knows? We'll see. Why Why did you choose to print Surfbook in Hong Kong? I worked with a producer, mm -hmm. a, like a book packager. And since I was publishing the book myself, they were helping me with all the, the details. And they had recommended this as a real high quality press. And they had done a few photography books that I'd known, mm -hmm. uh, that I'd been a fan of. So, Which ones? Uh, they'd done uh, David LaChapelle's first book. I think it's LaChapelle Land or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I thought the color in that book was even though my surf book didn't have much color mm -hmm. i i knew that black and white should be fairly manageable but color right. was a, con a concern of mine because of uh some pictures that i had in the book that were cross-processed and mm -hmm. super vivid right so i thought i i got to figure out a way to have to get that result and um when I saw that they had made that book, I was confident they could handle the color. And then again, I, I didn't probably, I, I kind of went with the recommendation without really thinking much about it. But China was a concern in terms of go, having to go over there. Mm -hmm. And uh, not that I didn't want to go over there. Had you been just, before? No. Had you been to like, Asia before? Or? I'd been to Japan. That must be sort of like a big undertaking. like. Going to, I've never been going to Hong Kong for a month to print a book. That's like I a big... was told I was going to go to Hong Kong for somewhere between three and five days. Oh, my God. And be on press, you know, for a yeah. couple of days. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. you know, be in Hong Kong for a day, go on press for three days, maybe five days and home. Were you the one who was causing the problems? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Story of my life. Uh, yeah, don't, you know, if I, I just wasn't going along with... Uh, just letting them lead me down this path. Mm -hmm. And I was asking too many questions. Mm -hmm. I was also being very, you know, right out of the gate, I was concerned about um, the press proofs that were coming here from there. And I wasn't happy with what I was seeing. Mm -hmm. And they kept saying, you'll be okay. Once you get on press, you'll have more latitude. You'll right. have more room to correct. Um, so what, I was saying it's going to be better than what you're seeing. It's going to be better than what you're seeing. Yeah, kinda. I said, well, why can't I see what I want to see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, here, yeah. I don't really want to travel all the way to the other side mm -hmm. of the planet to yeah. find out that I'm not going to get what I want. And right. so far, I'm not seeing you seeing what I want. Mm -hmm. So show me something closer. And we went through many rounds, and it was disappointing. And then in the end, they made an offer to, they said, look, we'll fly you over. Mm -hmm. We will fly you over at our expense. We're so confident that we'll get you what you want right and uh i, I sort of at that point i gave into it mm -hmm. luckily the book was separated in, in hong kong so that we could you know get into it and start to figure out how to get to where i wanted to be and unfortunately the separator was moving their facility and so they were packing, you know, moving and unpacking mm -hmm. and have to recalibrate all their machinery and get it all back up to speed. In the meantime, there was a 10-day national holiday, Chinese holiday. So they were like, well, we'll see you in 10 days, mm -hmm. you know. And I thought, wow, what am I going to do with myself for 10 days? Do I go back to New York or do I just sit it out? And I thought, ah, you know what? It's too much to go back and forth. Mm -hmm. And Do you explore a bunch of tea shops? So I got, yeah, <laughs> I got and, started. And here we are. Yes. How did that project start? I mean, Surfbook. I had a, a deep attraction and uh, interest in surfing from when I was 
very young, watching it on ABC Wide World of Sports, or just, and then I saw The Endless Summer when it came to New York. I, I started surfing when I was a teenager, just on a holiday mm-hmm. in South America, and um, and then um, I got to a point, I guess, uh, much later in life, where I had a car. I was out in the Hamptons, and I realized, wait a second, I can surf here, mm-hmm. and um, I started doing it pretty much alone. I didn't know too many people, but then I started sort of watching movies and um, reading Surfer Magazine, or I, I know, and Longboard Magazine too. That was the one. I started seeing Joel Tudor mm-hmm. and uh, lis- listening to him talk in movies and uh, interviews in the magazine. And I thought, uh, you know, this this guy, he really speaks for how I feel about surfing. But I, I thought, ah, you know, he's Southern California mm-hmm. here and probably our paths will never cross. But then he had a mutual friend in Montauk who introduced us and uh, we kind of hit it off right away. And Joel sort of um, suggested maybe working on a project together. What was the what was the connection point? Like, what was it that what makes what makes Joel Tudor different? Like, what was his kind of view of surfing that was so interesting? Um, I think he was just very into this sort of. He was fascinated with the culture mm-hmm. and every detail, every little sort of uh, subtle detail or nuance about everything. And he was just kind of embracing it all. And he was really bringing back longboard surfing, mm-hmm. traditional you know, longboard surfing. And he was really fascinated with how it all worked. And, and I think that I was sort of the same way about it. I couldn't get enough of, of all the, every little thing about the way surfboards were made and designed and fin design and wetsuit design and like everything about everything about everything. He's also like built this whole, this board company that's kind of amazing too yeah which happened actually the first year we were working together on the book which is first year that he came out with a line of uh, joel tudor surfboards my impression of of joel tudor Mm. i I see that there's kind of a i think there's a really not a divide but i think it's super different the kind of culture that he represents in surfing and then what culture is what what surfing has kind of grown into as Mm -hmm. like a phenomenon as a sport you know what i mean like there's i think there's like a really different kind of uh I don't know. I think there's a bit of a schism and like, and it is kind of this like longboarding culture, mm-hmm. you know, it's very different. Yeah. And I always tell people like the bet, my favorite part of surfing is just kind of floating. You know what I mean? I just sort of love being out there. I think it's such a, it's such a great thing. And you, there's, everyone has all these endorphins going mm-hmm. and when everyone's just sort of sitting out there, I feel like you build relationships with people through surfing that you don't get otherwise, you know, it's a cool thing. Absolutely. No, I agree. And that's, I, uh, I think you nailed it. I think that's what it was. It was just that I didn't really care much about learning tricks or, you know, doing anything more than just enjoying the experience of being in nature and being involved with a force of nature. Mm -hmm. The the ocean is a force of nature that moves, you know, in in its own rhythm. And it's incredible what it can do for your soul and your your own energy. and I've really felt like I, I still remember, I mean, I, I always try and explain this to people and it comes across so cheesy and like, and silly, but I still remember I have one perfect wave. I've won like one time when it was just perfect. Yeah. I still remember. I remember it so vividly that, that feeling. And it is just like, you know, when, like, I just remember how like smooth the water was and how just satisfying so it is. Cool. It's amazing. You yeah. Know? And it's, it's great. I want to, I'm chasing that feeling. That's my, 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good. That's, that's good. a resolution. I'm, I'm putting it, putting it on wax here. All that's right, my man. New Year's resolution. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Um, it sounds like you're you're heading towards towards it again. It's good. It, you know, I think that when I when I really sort of had everything lined up, the ability to get to the beach on my own and get aboard, and it didn't take much, but. Once I was sort of into it, it became very spiritual for me. And there was a time uh, for a long stretch where I just felt like, you know, I really don't want to mix surfing and photography. I don't want to commercialize this in any way. I just want this to be my sacred practice. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then when I met Joel, like the, the second Joel said, you know, if you ever want to work on a project together, I said, yeah, let's do it. Mm-hmm. I didn't even hesitate. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and I, I, I had this sort of a, a, like an out of body sort of perspective of uh, just checking myself out, saying, "Look at you, man! You're just sort of throwing, <laughs> throwing all that away right here in this moment." And I yeah, thought, yeah. well, but I'm doing it very consciously, you know, mm-hmm. very um, deliberately because this is the guy mm-hmm. and this is the moment. And we really got into it and worked really hard on it together. What it was, was the motivation? Like, what was the goal? Like, what were you trying to, what were you trying to do with the book? I don't think we knew that in the moment that we agreed to work on something together. I think we agreed to just sort of catch up. Like, you know, he said, well, when do you want to start? And I, I was like, I could start right away. And he mm-hmm. said, well, why don't you come to San Diego next week? And, uh, we started to just sit and talk. Mm-hmm. But the first day I came, Wayne Lynch, Bo Young, Andy Kidman were all crashing at Joel's house. And Joel's got a beautiful little house, but it's not, it's a one bedroom house. Yeah. <laughs> not really. Set, Five people there. Yeah, not really built to accommodate <laughs> the amount of people and, uh, that he had already there let alone my arrival mm-hmm. and uh but we he did have an extra bedroom or an extra room but it all worked in seniority and uh so i ended up on the couch which was better than the floor um i thought <laughs> anyway everybody seemed to be happy and we all hit it off really well right away and mm-hmm. it was a great time you know those days those first few days of all of us hanging out and then as everybody peeled away joel and i started to kind of lock into talking and just getting to know each other and then talking about this project just became more and more defined or realized through these long, long conversations and days of surfing together, Mm -hmm. eating together, talking together, watching movies, looking at pictures, him showing me all over the place, kind of giving me a lay of the land of uh, Encinitas and Carlsbad and taking me to meet Donald Takayama and just in every way giving me a a deep sense of the core of the culture Mm -hmm. we were both thinking portraits Mm -hmm. and we were both thinking how how do we where do we draw the line or how do we create a definition of because we could just go on forever photographing people and Mm -hmm. I, i it came to me at one point i said why don't we make a portrait of the culture through the people who shape the culture and either technologically or spiritually or in any way that that sort of helps to define or round out all the possible influences or the shape of the culture itself like Mm -hmm. how does it how did we get to this place time was of the essence there were a lot of older people who were we didn't know Mm -hmm. were reaching the end of their lives Mm -hmm. and we we raced out there 
over what we thought we would move him pretty quickly. But there isn't a lot of... Um, I, I saw really quickly that everybody loved Joel and they were interested in supporting our project, but they didn't have a whole lot of need for it themselves. You know, being part of a a kind of a... I wouldn't say it's like a counterculture. It's just, it's just like a... It's just not... Like they, these people live for a whole different reason. Yeah, and, it's not promotional. Uh, yeah, yeah, in any way. And yeah. so I think it it was sometimes they they all wanted to do it. They just didn't necessarily. They weren't on any schedule. Mm-hmm. And we quickly realized like we were going to have to kind of roll with that. And so some days we would accomplish quite a bit, and some days we would just be waiting and and. Uh, <laughs> You know, for things would up. not yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it all in the end worked out. It took five years, but it was worth the adventure. It was painful at times, and uh, you know, every once in a while we'd all lose our our patience with it. But it was worth it. The book is kind of just a piece of evidence of of our adventure, of our trying to get a piece of evidence of, of what we set out to accomplish. It, it's, I don't think we gave up at any point. We, we came really close to fulfilling the entire list of people within, I think, two people. Mm-hmm. And we felt like we were good that, to try to chase down two more people, which didn't look like it was going to ever, you know, happen at that point. Might as well just you know, kind of go for it and get it, you know, get it out there in the world. I, I remember saying to Joel in 1999, you know, this trend, I mean, surfing right now is hot. Like people are into it all of a sudden. <laughs> this trend could end, you know, Joel, it's just the way it was in the 60s. It could end yeah. any moment. Yeah, and then yeah. all of a sudden we're sitting on all this and, you know, this project that's mm-hmm. going to have no value because people are going to move on to something else, you mm-hmm. know. And, and I laugh about it because it's, I don't know, where are we now? We're, we're like 20 years from where we started, I guess. Isn't that crazy? I didn't think about that. <laughs> and uh, it's like 20 years later, surfing is still like growing. Mm-hmm. You know, people are still really turned on. And it's really great to see. Well, one of, the thing I, one of the things I think is cool about that book is that it really does feel like you're kind of within that community, you know? Because all the pictures, I was kind of curious to ask how formal some of the sort of sessions were because they feel so casual you know what I mean they feel like you're just kind of catching someone like right out of the water you know how'd you kind of go about that as a light touch what, it, how were you photographing I think that? in the beginning I realized <clears throat> I'd done a few projects before that one where I had taken different approaches to how formal I was going to define the approach and um, on this one, I thought I'm going to leave it really up to each person we photograph to determine everything, mm-hmm. time, place. And then I was going to be there to serve their vision, to be as open to adapting to any different way that each person wanted to be photographed. And I thought that would be sort of the, the best way to also capture the surf vibe, the mm-hmm. surf culture, the surf the, the sort of hang loose yeah. nature of it all. Yeah, yeah. Because if I took this rigid, okay, I'm going to do a very, um, you know, August Sanders or Avedon approach to it where I'm just going to isolate these people or I'm mm-hmm. going to structure it in a way, mm-hmm. then I'm imposing so much of myself on it yeah. and my own view or my own 
definitions about surfing. Um, and I wanted to leave it open to a much broader, to each individual's definition combined in the book, mm-hmm. <clears throat> which I thought would help also show that, you know, there's people like Kelly Slater and Rob Machado, and then there's people like Wayne Lynch or Mickey Dora, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that the, these people, they, they all have the same love of surfing, just mm-hmm. a different way of defining that. For what was themselves. Kelly like to shoot? I mean, he's one of these guys, oh, he's, he's become great. like so much bigger than, so much bigger than surf. You know what I mean? He's like this, he's like an icon. It's crazy. Yeah, he's like an icon on the outside, uh, you know, to, in, in the outside world where icons, you know, um, yeah. exist. And I, I guess he's he seems comfortable with that in his own skin. Um, I don't think it matters that much because I think he's well grounded as a, a human being that, you know, very dedicated to surfing, you know, really gifted, mainly gifted in the fact that he found this thing he loves to do mm-hmm. so much otherwise is just a, a really nice guy um, have you seen the wave pool i've seen you know films of it you know the stuff on on <laughs> totally Instagram crazy or whatever it's beautiful so it's such a weird quality like i remember when i first saw it i kind of didn't know what i was looking at it, it almost looks like yeah. a cgi wave or something it's you know it's like perfect Pristine. Yeah, and then there's uh, William Finnegan's story on the New Yorker radio. So you've got to listen to that if Wait, what's you haven't. That? The guy who wrote Barbarian Days, mm-hmm. he's a writer with uh, New Yorker magazine, but he also just did a story on the wave pool oh, I where that. he went out there. And, and he surfed it, I, I think, just one or two times, a couple of times. He was you know, very impressed. I think the implications of that are actually kind of huge. Obviously, you know, surfing, and it's one of the things that's so great about it is that it's so like it's so dependent on nature. You know, you have to you have to you've got to be by the beach. You have to be you have to have the break. You have to have the weather. Like all the conditions have to be just so. But I think that 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 wave pool, if it becomes kind of something that can be sort of like. Uh, you could potentially kind of put it anywhere. You could build one sort of anywhere. Yeah. I mean, th- it could totally open up surfing to, like, think about all the, you know, most, all the country can't surf, yeah. never isn't, isn't exposed to surfing. Like all these, all these areas, you know, it'd be crazy if it became sort of like a, a different kind of urban surfing. It'd be wild. Yeah. I could see it. I could see it happening in like, you know, 20 years. Yeah. It's, um, they talk, they cover all that, cool. you know, how that, the up and down side of it that, mm-hmm. you know, Maybe people will not know the experience that you described originally. Well, it you know, changes. Just pure, yeah. pure surfing in the in nature where things it's, are out of control. You it's know, like, like snowboarding in Dubai, right? You know, it's yeah. like the it's like the crazy like indoor ski mountains. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, I mean, there's something weird about it. There's something super strange about it. But there's also, I think, there's something actually very cool about it too. If it can introduce people who wouldn't do that otherwise or wouldn't have that as like a, an idea. Yeah, I mean, there's a natural. I guess you know, there's sort of a natural order to things, mm-hmm. and sometimes if you remove the the fight for something you know then then there's a sort of emptiness to the experience itself it's like a, you're fast tracked to something normally you would have had to do a lot more to get to um and so maybe you, you don't have this you know if the board hits you in the face or something you're like yeah i'm done with this yeah yeah, yeah. as opposed to being a little more invested in mm-hmm, it and mm-hmm. being willing to you know work a little harder for the experience I, I got I'm, I'm making some new um, yeah it's a tough one I, I kind of agree with both sides I think that there's a, a great value 
to making the experience accessible to people. And then there's this other side of it that might just get lost, which is just the, the, the original natural way. But I mean, you know, you can have this conversation about, you know, uh, film photography versus digital photography right. and the change yeah. that it, that's uh, had on how people can access photography mm-hmm. easier now than back in the day where, you know, when I first moved in here and needed to have a dark room mm-hmm. and a studio and, you know, the ability to do everything Did you myself. ever switch over? Do you ever, did you ever do digital photographs? Or? I borrow a camera when I need to mm-hmm. um, photograph because you're it. still you still got the eight by ten set up. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm working with these. Um, this for the past ten twelve years, I've been making portraits with the eight by ten camera. I still work with medium format a little bit, but mainly I'm focused on that. And I I just love the the clarity, the the sharpness. It sees more than the human eye can appreciate, and yeah. I think that there's something really amazing about that. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure. And somewhere deep in that experience of of looking at a a film negative uh, generated photograph that versus a digital image, which you know the difference of when you get down to the grain mm-hmm. versus the pixels, that there's something very comforting about grain versus hitting that wall of pixels and sort of it not having that same natural feeling to mm-hmm. it. And I don't know, I, I, maybe that's something I've made up in my mind, or, but I do feel it sometimes that, you know, I hit a, a wall with um, digital made images faster, sort of the impact of it runs out for me much quicker. Um, do you remember your first camera? It's a Pentax Spotmatic, and a friend of mine who works over at B&H had one and gave it to me as a mm-hmm. gift just recently. So I, it's like I've come full circle, and now I'm like looking at this camera, and it's so simple. It's really it's a great camera. Down. Yeah, you should you should shoot some. I'm really excited to yeah. to work with it again. Yeah, that's cool. How did you get into photography at first? It was in school in the fifth grade. I was walking down the hall one day from one class to another, and this kid popped his head out of this doorway in the hallway that I had never even known existed. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, hey, you want to see something cool? And I, I, I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And I walked in, and he closed the door, shut out the lights, and there was a like a amber light on, and he put... A piece of paper under the enlarger and made an exposure and then he we walked over to the sink and he put the paper in this tray and up came this image and the second I saw that image come it came up you know coming up I I thought oh man this is amazing this mm-hmm. is like magic I, mm-hmm. I've got to do this mm-hmm. and I got into it um, I went home and told my parents, I've got to get a camera. I'm really into photography. I've got to get a camera. And they said, uh, you know, we've financed a lot of hobbies. You just seem to come in with a different hobby every, you know, week. Um, So we'll make a deal with you here. You know, camera's not cheap, and uh, you seem to move through these hobbies pretty quickly. If you're still into photography in a year, we'll buy you a camera. Mm And I thought, oh, God, that's, that's a long time. But in the meantime, I just started printing in the darkroom. Oh, cool. And a year went by, and I never forgot. You know, I said, yeah, I still want that camera. So they bought me that Pentax. What'd you I print? wanted a Nikon, but of course, you know, 
<laughs> it was the Nikon that I wasn't going to get the Nikon. Was that the right deluxe away. option? Oh yeah, the Nikon <laughs> was. You know, and kids in my class had Nikon's, and I thought, you know, God, these kids are walking around with. You know, this is a pretty, that's a pretty, um, you know, pro mm-hmm. rigged for people to be. You know, just mm-hmm. kind of rolling in with at yeah, age yeah. eleven. So, I don't know. It all seemed realistic to me, but. They said, well, you know, work with this first. And then, you know, if you're still into it down the line, we'll get you the Nikon. So, yeah. It's actually very cool, though, like that you're coming from like the darkroom is like more the home base than the camera. It's actually kind of interesting. Yeah, it was a really it was a good way to to be forced to uh, work with the end result because mm-hmm. it's in the end everything you're, you're working to that point. And so if you think about it, if you if you really understand the end result better then everything you, you, when you backtrack into it, mm-hmm. it, which was a weird way to do it, you know, to then go back to camera, getting a camera a year later. And then, uh, the first day I loaded film in it and walked outside, I thought, Oh, I, I have no idea what I want to really photograph. Mm-hmm. It was very strange, but I did know that at that point exposing the film and sort of serving the print process was everything I needed to think about from the mm-hmm. beginning. So it was good. Yeah, it was like it was your good. fundamentals. Mm. What did you start photographing? What were, what, what were your first photographs oh, like? I mean, you know, like we had, I had a pet dog and, you know, like <laughs> we were out in the country during the summer. So I'd go and photograph a lot of landscapes uh-huh. and a lot of ruins of like the, this depressed town, these little villages or towns nearby that had all these broken down buildings and just things, railroad tracks and things that had sort of a perspective dynamics or things that I felt, you know, grabbed my eye. Nothing I just like a good railroad track. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, that's it. I could be endlessly happy with railroad tracks. I don't know. There's something about, there's so much there, huh? It's really funny. Yeah. They're not bad. It's funny. Like I, yeah, I'm starting to, I'm starting to come back around on the railroad track thing. I could, I could make a couple of railroad track pictures. I was trying to convince this band <laughs> to let me photograph them on these railroad tracks. They weren't having it? And they were like, you know, it's such a cliched thing. And I was like, but you're you're a blues band. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you deserve this. This mm-hmm. is a, You've a sort it. of part of the lineage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is part of the, the, the romantic sort of, like, construct of it all. You know, like the the railroad tracks and the destination or, you know, the freedom or the, the freedom of traveling or, you know, unknown to unknown destinations or whatever it represents. I could not convince them. And then after we were, you know, finished and I don't know, I still, I forget what it was that I, I said, yeah, we got to do that. Like I've been pushing them since then. They were like, yeah, those pictures were really good. And I was like, well, I'm still hung up on getting that railroad track shot. <laughs> so whenever you want to do pictures, I don't know if I'm chasing them away, you know, by it. But I, um, there's a railroad track, like an intersection of a road and a railroad track that's sort of V out. And that road kind of winds down. And it's just a beautiful... Where? It's out in that peak. It's mm-hmm. really easy to find. It's right off of... You know the ro- the main road, twenty seven. But it's just this beautiful little setup. Did but you always want to shoot did you shoot like musicians? Was that was that the first thing for you? Well, you know, I had this um, back in the age ten uh, time. I got into music, and then I just wanted to play music. And I got into guitar, and then shortly after was introduced to the darkroom and photography. So they really happened at the same time. Mm-hmm. So music and photography have been 
two passions that I have felt you know, very strongly about and just didn't think about combining them until they just sort of, it made sense to bring my camera to concerts or bring my camera to, to music in, in any other way possible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was kind of growing both interests simultaneously. And then they just kind of merged um, naturally. It occurs to me like maybe like one of the sort of first big moments in your career is going on tour with the Rolling Stones. How did you get hooked up with them? Like, was that crazy? What, what? Yeah, that was crazy. It was, um, I had worked on a few small jobs with them. Mm-hmm. And it started when I was 14 years old. I, had, I was going to boarding school with um, Jerry Wexler's daughter and Tom Dowd's son. I had become really good friends with both of them. And they brought me into the city where their parents were both working at Atlantic Records mm-hmm. and both as producers. And Tom Dowd was also a, a legendary engineer who invented the mix board as we know it now mm-hmm. with the faders and, and all the controls. So they were extremely gracious people and really warm and friendly to me and saw that I had this big, deep interest in what they were doing Mm -hmm. and very um, inviting and supportive. And so I just used to come over to visit the, the record company had a recording studio, a mixing room and a mastering room, Mm -hmm. all the facilities necessary to create a record and then the offices of promotion and everything else um all the other aspects of a record company all housed in one two floors of a building in uh near columbus circle so and i was living on the upper west side so it was very easy for me to sort of drift down there quite a bit and just kind of wander in and go sit in the recording studio like a fly on the wall and watch amazing recording sessions going on i just used any excuse to go there and Mm -hmm. hang out and i learned a lot and um after that i was working a lot of like kind of i don't know just jobs i could get my hands on and one day I, i i guess i it was like just after i was 17 SIR Studio Instrument Rentals came mm-hmm. to New York and uh, they were a, a company that had rehearsal studios and storage and also rented equipment and musical instruments and amplifiers and everything and also did cartage for bands touring. Uh, so I went to work for them driving a truck doing cartage, bringing equipment to the airport, picking equipment up from the airport and also bringing equipment to venues around mm-hmm. New York and then also getting studios prepared for bands to come in and rehearse so I was meeting a lot of bands and then I got this idea in my head that I really wanted to go out on tour with bands mm-hmm. you know with with bands and and either be a roadie or do whatever um I could do I I ended up roadieing for a bunch of bands and then I I ended up as a tour manager for a couple of tours for some bands and and then I was in college. Aren't you like 18 though? <clears throat> yeah, I, I was. I did it till I got until I got. So you're precocious. Into my yeah, uh, I did it right up to. I did my first year of college, and I was still working with this one band, and then or maybe it was two bands, and then I uh, ended up peeling away from that and uh, trying to take school a little more seriously. Where were you in school? Uh, SBA? Was this I SBA? Did, I went to. I did one year. 
at uh, Ithaca College. I, I just really had no idea what I wanted to do. So right. I, I had no real direction. And mm-hmm. I was just sort of taking, a, like maybe I had a business major and a psych minor or something. I think I switched it to like a education minor mm-hmm. in the second semester. And then I just realized like, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to stay here. And I uh, went on a car ride with my mother. She was asking me what I wanted to do. And I said, uh, I don't know. I just don't want to go back to Ithaca. Ithaca, New York. Yeah. And she said, well, she asked me what I was thinking of doing. And I said, I think I'll just go back to New York and get a job and mm-hmm. move in with my girlfriend who was graduating from a different college and, uh, at the time and maybe get a band together. Were you a cool kid? Were you, like, were you too cool for school? I don't think I was cool. I, I never thought I was cool. I just thought I was struggling uh, to find my way. Uh-huh. You know, like I, I wasn't worried about it. I, I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. So I was just like, ah, maybe I'll try this. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother was the. She said, without missing a beat, she said, uh, "Whatever you decide to do, just try to imagine yourself at 50 years old mm-hmm. or something like that." Immediate. I had this instant vision of myself like sitting on a low stage on a chair Mm. in a rumpled tuxedo with one of those sort of hollow body jazz guitars playing Hava Nagila at a bar mitzvah (laughs) and it was bad it was a bad vision and it was uh, and I uh, instantly I said back to her I said what do you think I should do and she said "Uh, maybe art school would be good for you and when she said that, I thought, why didn't I think of art school? That's crazy. Like, it's a whole... And it, it, it just resonated with me so... It just felt so right. And I thought, wow, I mm-hmm. never considered that, you know. And, and uh, she had recommended it mainly in, in the direction of advertising, commercial mm-hmm. art. In the springtime, I went to SVA and I, um, a f- family friend introduced me to the head of the fine arts department. And I went to meet him, and he was going to introduce me to the admissions department. But this was like June, mm-hmm. you know. It's like the weirdest time to go and try to apply to a school, right? And, you know, pretty much closing down for the summer. And um, I brought I brought work with me, and I sat down with this woman, and she looked at it, and she said, "Well, you're these were, these were pictures I'd drawn or painted when I was like in single digits. You yeah, know, like, you're just bringing whatever you had. Yeah, yeah, and it's like after school art classes or something. <laughs> and um, she said, uh, "Your drawing skills are really not up to, uh, you know, the up to the level of we're that cutting we the mustard. Yeah. You know that you we could accept you into the school. But um, do you have anything else at home that you could bring in? And I said, "Yeah, I have photography. I, I could bring that in." And she said, "Yeah, bring that in tomorrow. Let's see that." And I brought the photography in, you know, that I'd been doing since, you know, from 10 to 19. I think I just had edited a whole range of of work. She looked at it and accepted me. She said, well, we can accept. This is great. Well, I'll accept you into the photography department right away. And if you have your heart set on, you know, commercial art, um, you can take some classes and maybe bring your, you know, drawing skills up and reapply. And Mm -hmm. I, I... sort of just was happy to be accepted i yeah, didn't really have care. a thing yeah but i had never thought of photography as a career and there i was like 19 years old accepted to sva for photography 
And I was uh, that summer. I started driving a horse and carriage in Central Park. You drove a horse and carriage. I, uh, oh my god! I, yeah, I did. It was a default sort of thing because <laughs> I was trying to get a job as a taxi driver, but uh, they wouldn't hire me. Like I had long hair. Uh huh. Nineteen. I'm sure they'd had enough of that type of person right. cracking their cars up right, or whatever. Right, right. So they didn't want... I um, can't imagine a horse and carriage is, uh, seems like more responsibility to me. Yeah, that was nuts. It's really. kind of a weird, a, it's a weird world, that whole thing. I mean, do you have any horse and carriage stories? What was that like? It was good. It was the summer of 76. It was the Democratic National Convention. So the city was busy. Mm. It was hopping. And, and everybody was using the horse and carriage sort of uh, scenario for their... Um, the photo ops. Yeah, photo and, yeah. and uh, t- TV news stuff. So we were getting a lot of like, you know, a lot of rides and a lot of tips and a lot of. It was just very. It was probably as good or maybe better than driving a taxi. Mm-hmm. Less stressful because mm-hmm. you're just hanging out. Um, you're kind of more of a sitting target. You don't have to drive around looking for work. You just sit there and people come up to you or not and then it just kind of died away like I don't know I moved on in my life to school you know SVA became more Mm all-encompassing and I I never looked back you know like you kind of immediately started doing these photographs right I mean these like immediately turned to sort of portraiture right yeah it just became you know sort of somewhere between portraits and fashion I was just wanted bodies I wanted people Mm -hmm. and I was using any of those directions because they involved people Mm -hmm. one involved more about you know the person themselves and the other had this sort of fantasy element to it so fashion you could just be more creative with in terms of building scenarios and making you know it's like dress up and you know there's something that lets you be really formally creative with fashion photography you know you can kind of you can experiment formally in a lot of different ways you know with your light and kind of you can get weird with things and it's still people understand how to read it, you know? And I yeah. think that's actually, yeah, there's more license for experimentation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, you could do that with anything but to find your way, um, you know, or your voice, but, uh, but fashion just had a lot of, there was more volume. There was more of it to do. Mm-hmm. I found, you know, right away with portraits, it was, um, it was very personal, so I needed to create more of a personal style or a look to the work to mm-hmm. define myself or distinguish myself from everybody else. Because there was a lot of people making portraits at that mm-hmm. point. There was so much competition in fashion. And portraiture didn't have as much maybe competition, but you still had to have something mm-hmm. to get yourself into people's heads and get them to remember you and want to work with you and I mean there was a lot of venues for it so it was good for that and the, the music magazines and interview magazine and but you asked me about how I got involved with the Rolling Stones or how I got onto the Rolling Stones tour and yeah. I kind of went all the way back to when I was 14 because um, my connection to Atlantic Records is is in a way my first exposure, my first connection to people who helped me then get work with the Rolling Stones when I was in art school. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing these little jobs and Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stones had Rolling Stone Records, this boutique label. They started to sign other acts, um, other musicians. And so they had Peter Tosh and Jim Carroll and 
somehow these projects needed publicity pictures and I became the go-to person to make these publicity pictures. So mm-hmm. I did um, the back cover of Jim Carroll's uh, Catholic Boy record and then uh, Peter Tosh came out with this album called Wanted, titled Wanted, and they hired me to do a publicity portrait with him. In a way, when I look back, I was already getting this work with Rolling Stone Records and then the work just got more and more involved. The next job I got from them was to go out and uh, be mix personal photographer for a press conference he was giving to uh, announce the 1981 Tattoo You North American tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went out there, uh, it was like at a, literally at a moment's notice. They gave me like an hour to go home, get my cameras and stuff and come get in the car and go out with them wow. to, yeah. to Philly. And so I, um, I, I screwed that job up really well and then um, <laughs> basically thought, well, that's the end of my opportunity to do anything kind of directly to any band yeah, activity. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Strangely enough, they contacted me like uh, shortly after to offer me a cover story for Rolling Stone magazine of Keith Richards. And so that turned into about a six-week-long project of just hanging around and working with him whenever he felt right with it Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um you know there was a lot of he had a lot of work uh, rehearsing and preparing for the tour so i was just kind of laying back and waiting for the opportunities um to come up for us to work together and he was trying different things out Mm -hmm. with me but i felt like it was almost it was really interesting in the Considering his experience being photographed and maybe being understood as a person, because I I think it's really hard to sometimes step out of your own self and try to see yourself the way all these fans see you. Yeah. And so I think it's hard sometimes to sort of get somebody who walks into this situation like myself and, um, for him to sort of feel comfortable or feel like that I'm not intimidated, that I'm not, you know, in some way to, to be able to relate to him mm-hmm. in a way that would help the audience appreciate him yeah, yeah, that yeah. much more. Um, were you able to? I mean, were you, how old were you at the time? I was 25. I, I think I had just turned 25. Were like, you intimidated? I was majorly, uh, <laughs> massively intimidated, um, and there was a moment where the first night I arrived in Worcester, Massachusetts at this farmhouse outside of Worcester, Mass. They were rehearsing for the tour, and they were all staying on this horse farm that had a recording studio and an empty space, a big rehearsal space up in the top. And so they were kind of uh, camped out up in there working mm-hmm. all night long rehearsing 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 and uh, I went in I arrived in the evening just as they were all getting ready to have dinner and I walked into this room well I, I arrived there with Kurt Loder who was writing the story for Rolling Stone mm-hmm. and uh, Kurt kind of walked in and he's like hey and I just kind of slipped back into the shadows yeah, against yeah. the door like by the door <laughs> And Mick came over, he grabbed me by my arm, and he pushed me over a little law further into the corner, and he said, hey, you know, we have a lot of respect for your work, and the only way this is going to work is if you can deal with us as equals. Mm-hmm. So 
it's very mature of Mick Jagger. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> that's yeah, that's a whole other story. Yeah, he's he's in a, these these guys are you know very experienced and um, and they yeah they were very sensitive to all of that. He said to me, you know, can you can you handle that? And I said, yeah. He was like, okay. Join us for dinner. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Wow, okay." And it did. It did sort of put me into a, uh, you know, it, it it definitely made me feel a little more relaxed. Um, but over time, I went through various stages of becoming even more. Well, I was very serious about my work, and it was just a matter of trying to get into their world a little more and not be so blown away by it. Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, six weeks down the line, we were ready to make cover picture. Right. And we did make a beautiful portrait. Um, many good portraits came out of it. However, Rolling Stone magazine decided to run with a picture they had in their files from a few years before. They just got tired of waiting for us. And it was a shame because mm-hmm. we worked really hard. And uh, in retrospect, I realized like that everybody was... Keith included, we're, we're all waiting to get into the right place right? to, to make it as authentic as possible. Mm-hmm. And it just took a lot, you know, it just took a lot of, and I don't, sometimes I think there's just a lack of understanding or appreciation on this part of a magazine, the, the editors and the people who are, that don't really appreciate what it takes to kind of get, to kind of transcend all the mechanics and get it to a place where it's very human, you know, and, and sometimes that just takes a lot of like startup. And in the case of the Rolling Stones, maybe it just took six weeks for us to get it. It's like hard to show up on that date and be like, we have two hours to make it. And then it's done. It's like, you gotta, you gotta sit with it. Yeah. I don't know what the rush was really at the end of the day. You know, sometimes you look back and you think, you know, they were pressuring me and then I was having to figure out how to tactfully pressure Keith, Mm -hmm. which is not, you know, anything I wanted to do. do. Well, it's not (laughs) something I wanted to do either. I had huge respect for his, for his space and and what he wanted to do. And I was just there to, to serve, you know, to work and, and serve that, you know, try to get, get the best out of out of him and and whenever that was going to be and Mm -hmm. and he knew i was there i was staying in the room right next to him Mm -hmm. so you know i was always available i was you know like ready to go you know so it wasn't you know I, i was just careful to just say hey you know hey keith i'm getting calls they're really on deadline and you know he's like all right all right you know tonight we're gonna do it you know and and you know sure enough he was never putting me off you know I mean, maybe he'd say, all right, let's see what we can do. You know, he'd never commit unless he was ready to commit. And so, you know, when we finally nailed it down and did it, it was awesome. It was magical, but it was... uh, What's the picture? It's just a portrait of him. I set up a little studio in my hotel room and he came in and we just started to work. You know, we built it from scratch. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a canvas backdrop with him. uh, Simple. Yeah, head and shoulders both of us kind of crawling around on the floor and getting just interesting moments him being you know right after a show it's like two three in the morning and uh really fully in his element so it was um it was as good as you could get it um i have a great portrait of him this last cup is the rinse from the beginning and uh it's not that's not a traditional thing but somebody turned me on to having that at the 
end because it's sort of the deepest richest pour because it's been sitting longer or just because it's it, right when the tea it hits kind it. of the tea releases a ton right away mm-hmm. and then it, as you notice it just gets paler and paler and paler and it's beautiful mm-hmm. even now it's still amazing but after drinking all the cups of tea we've had that becomes like because we've layered up so much tea in our mouths when that goes you're ready in, you're just, ready for boom, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it just yeah. explodes all right now I'm like, cool. I, we got one we got one more yeah. to go and then we get to the the yeah and we're so pale now that the contrast <laughs> is is radical all right cool yeah so what else let's see where was i so well, i suppose um, we were talking about this this portrait of uh this portrait of Keith that you did. Yeah. And actually makes me curious. So you were doing a lot of these studio portraits at the time, and obviously you've always been doing studio portraits. I mean, do, how do you kind of approach that situation? Like, how do you, how do you approach having someone in the studio? I mean, do you have, do you have kind of a strategy that you, that you use? Well, I think the thing I actually fell in love with about working on a blank background on an empty background of either a white background or a gray background or or just even a color background, but just that there's nothing else there to attach to or compose mm-hmm. with, that you're just dealing with a, a person, a shape. There's a lot of incredible art from history, you know, that you can learn from in terms of balancing mm-hmm. negative and positive space. I think you build on it. It's a constant dialogue, mm-hmm. internal dialogue going on that I, I think a lot about what I've done, what I've done that I feel is successful and what I've done that I feel I could improve on moving forward. And, and then what are those things? What, what are the details in the, the, the work I've made that I feel I can improve on? And just trying to keep considering them, but not narrowing them into each new portrait. Because I think that it's like a vocabulary it's just expanding your vocabulary mm-hmm. as you go and so i think it's just a matter of keeping as many possibilities or or collecting possibilities and mm-hmm. then just having them there but not cluttering your head you know but do you think you've changed a lot like if you look back on the work 80s 90s thousands i mean do you think can you spot big changes decade by decade or year by year maybe i have but hopefully not in the sense that I, I think that we have a, a kind of a, a core reference or sense of things, and that's our voice. That's mm-hmm. what we, that's our, you know, resource uh, or our, our source sort of a place that decides our taste in things, or what we like, what we don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I just try really hard to be as open-minded to everything as possible, open to this situation as much as possible. You know, I just made a portrait of uh, somebody recently that I kept composing. I, I had a feeling going into this that things right away, I composed the picture the way I thought. And I thought, oh, it's interesting. I'm composing this picture without any kind of thought. And uh, I had it in a place. And then I went back to check the focus and the person had moved a little bit closer. Mm-hmm. And so I refocused, I recomposed it back to where I I, st- I started and refocused and then I noticed uh, I made the picture and then I noticed they moved in closer again and I thought something's going on here don't fight it allow this composition to be what it's imposing so I just focused it and I let it be that much closer filling up the frame that much more and then I noticed that it kept happening it wanted to stay there that way and as long as it wanted to stay there, I, I made a few variation, you know, a few 
exposures. And then all of a sudden it changed on its own and went to another place. And I thought, wow, I just learned something here about just being that much more open-minded to mm-hmm. something that, that I wasn't imposing or that I didn't need to impose myself on it that way. And that I could be okay with just what was happening. So, you know, uh, you maybe, talk to people? maybe that'll never occur again, <laughs> but um, I try not to uh, distract people with conversation, but I don't want it to be silent either. Right. And I don't, I don't want to make people uncomfortable with silence, nor do I want them to feel uncomfortable with having to talk. Mm-hmm. So there's a balance, I think, uh, in terms of how much interaction. And then I think, you know, certain key moments can really improve the situation. And you have to kind of roll with those naturally. Because if you try really hard to contrive something, it'll start to stick out like you're trying too hard. Mm-hmm to make the person, I don't know, laugh or, I don't know, or change the thing, change the feeling, change the direction of the mood or whatever. So, uh, you know, I try to not make it feel too artificial like that I'm, I'm directing. Or, mm-hmm. You know, also, I don't want to direct. I don't want to impose. I, I just want to make portrait true, very truthful, very pure portraits. So, uh, I spend more time thinking about what that means, what, what, what's involved, all mm-hmm. the subtlety involved in what that, what would be necessary to make that happen. It's a funny thing, you know, not to, just to realize that you have a frame and, you know, the camera's loaded and uh, now you're in the moment of determining when the correct moment is to make the exposure and everything resets, you know, you get, you know, press the shutter and, ah, oh, damn, that was not... Great. What wasn't so great about that? Okay, here's your next chance to fix it. So there's always a new opportunity, mm-hmm. you know, and I give myself half a dozen chances or 10 chances, you know. Ten a, bo- by a box of 8 by 10 <laughs> is 10 sheets. So I figure, okay, that's good for one person, but yeah. I'm not going to really aim at 10. I'll aim at 6. Mm-hmm. And if I feel like I screwed up, I have four buffer, you know, four shots, of four exposures more to fix it you know, or feel good about it. You know, the last time I was here, I remember you said when you were starting photography and that you wanted to make iconic images, mm. that you like aspired to make iconic images. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. I think I realized I was interested in making my work as powerful as possible, whatever that meant. It, it wasn't necessarily aimed at, a, you know, a, like a sort of universal, uh, you know, kind of mm-hmm. impact. I think I was trying to serve myself first and uh and and my fascination with iconic images was what are the mechanics you know what's going on in here that's making this such a powerful picture making Mm -hmm. it uh have such strong impact on me so i look at the sailor kissing the nurse in times square or the picture of uh, the couple kissing in paris hotel de ville Mm -hmm. or and other images like that, the picture of Che Guevara that Corda made that became probably maybe the most iconic image yeah. we know. Yeah. Um, and just looking at, uh, yeah, it's good, it's right? Yeah. It's yeah, this, this That's one. That's amazing. <laughs> this is good all the way to the last drop, this tea. It's amazing. Um, but I had the luck of uh, getting to meet first Robert Duano, who I wanted to meet and sought out through a friend who worked it out for me, the, the film director, Diane Currys, whose friend, Isabel Huppert, 
actress um, had just been photographed by all these famous uh, French street photographers, Cartier-Bresson, Bressay, and Coli, and Lartigue, and Duano. And so I'd love to see that story. That, I bet that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I never thought to check that out. I, I kind of like raced past that on the, you know, with this objective to get to Duano. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good point. I got to see if the, if I can get get to see that too. And uh, so I I got to meet Duano and talk with him. It actually uh, I went to visit him many times, and then I got to meet Corda, who had made the picture of Che, and I had then got to see the full frame because that's a cropped image from a full frame. Yeah. So it was good to see how the with Duano, it was uh, like a roll of film or many rolls of film. I don't mm-hmm. remember, but there's clearly like the moment. And yeah. then with Corda, there was one frame preceding the frame that worked. And so there was this two pictures made to get to that one moment. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this picture I have over here of the kid with the, the boy with the fist in the air out in the crowd from the last night of the, the Stones tour, the last show. And I had walked out on stage to to take advantage of uh, this one last opportunity to photograph the crowd. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I have nothing to lose here. I mean, if I get fired tonight, the tour's over anyway. (laughs) It's only a few more hours left. I might as well just go for broke and do stuff that, you know, normally I would be more uh, careful about. And so I walked out and I stood there with a camera and just started picking different sections of the audience. And I came across this person who had raised his fist in the air and his his eyes were you know just barely visible and then he stepped up on his tiptoes and i made the second exposure and that's the 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 frame that worked the best and and that picture grew on me over the years it's become almost more iconic to me in my career and a summary or a summation of of everything i've tried to accomplish it's, it's more pure, whereas in the studio, there's a whole other struggle going on because it's such a formal environment mm-hmm. and everything is sort of iconic in nature because you're isolating. But at the same time, I felt like there's, there's a different kind of work that has to be done to make that powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think that these moments when you're working with a camera and there's so many variables going on and you're considering a lot of this all at once that the more you're photographing, the more likely these moments are gonna occur. It's not a game of chance or luck, but you definitely have more opportunities when you you're doing it more. Yeah. yeah. And then it's just a matter of a lot of elements coming together. You know what's funny though? Like Sometimes I wonder and this is a question I have for you too, but you look yeah. at that image of Che Guevara and you got, and sometimes I think, was it iconic to the photographer in that moment or did it, do they, do they sometimes take on a life of their own? You know, I mean, is it hard to kind of recognize it in your own work? Yeah. You know, I think we, we walk around, you know, we're, we're seeing everything through a filter and it's a filter of, of sort of our, our, partly our own construct and partly just how we're shaped, Mm -hmm. you know, how we were shaped through our lives, you know, through our experiences and how we reference, how we we look at the world and how we, you know, reference things. So I think sometimes we learn from looking at our own work, we learn about ourselves. And and then it's just a matter of, uh, you know, being open to that, that interaction, that process. I'd say probably your most famous photograph, you know, like the iconic photograph that I think people 
mention first when they talk about you is this mm. image of Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat with the boxing gloves. Yeah. Did that strike you as being immediately this image that would be, I mean, I feel like that that's the image of them together, you know, and, yeah. and they died relatively soon after. So. Yeah. Huh. Did that strike you that way in the moment? I, I worked as hard as I worked on any other sitting. I, I, I don't think I, I took it any more or less seriously. I think I, I, I put myself into it in the moment, which is always like uh, everything. You know, I usually am wiped out for a day after I've done a, a photo sitting. So mm-hmm. it, I can tell that I'm, I put a lot of energy, physical, emotional, creative, whatever you want to call it. So I remember every moment of that at sitting in terms of what was going on on my end, you know, it's internally. But I don't think I connected with that that particular sitting in thinking, wow, I just made history here or anything. I mean, it was ironic that, you know, a couple of days later, I ended up in Paris with Jean-Michel, who invited me to come with him, which wasn't even like we hadn't talked about what we were going to do. He just said, I'm going to Paris tomorrow. Do you want to come with me? And And I happily accepted to jump on this little adventure. Um, I didn't know that I was going to be meeting Duano within like a week of having made that image. And uh, so, and that image would go on to become sort of my defining, you know, iconic picture. Um, You happy with that as your picture? Yeah, I think it like it. I am. I'm happy with a lot of my pictures. I think it's, you know, for years I wrestled with, I struggled with that picture, feeling like, hey, that picture's not the best picture I've ever made. You know, I've definitely had more control over other pictures. And I felt like this picture had more control from the point of view of the subject matter than it did from what I gave to it. Mm -hmm. But then I realized many years later that... No, this picture is a celebration of everything I wanted to achieve in my uh, career, working on the white background, getting to the place where I can compose really quickly, you know, fluidly adjust composition to a, a place that where I felt was perfection for me. Mm-hmm. In every way, that picture is sound within the, you know, inherent black border that comes with the film, you know, comes with the image. So, and I print it that way. It's um, a celebration of the New York School of Photography, keeping the, the black border in the picture. I feel like that's a testament to everything that the way I saw it without any change or modification Mm -hmm. you know in every way it's a solid picture and then the fact that it's of these two people who really had tremendous impact on my life and and that keeps unfolding for me you know as I live with this picture I realize more and more about both of them in a lot of ways you know they are far from dead for me you know like it's a you know I get to learn more and interact more with those people through those pictures than I would have ever thought but it's a yeah I'm really happy with that picture now it took a long time to uh, to settle into that and it's not so much just because of the success it's had maybe that helps in terms of forcing me to look at it more. And that was a good thing because I might've been resisting it more because of how you know heavily subject driven it is. But yeah, I mean, I've had to print it a lot and I've looked at it a lot and, and realize so much about how technically it celebrates everything I love about photography. So 
yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's interesting when you get enough years on stuff, mm. how it all fits into kind of this greater overview. Like, and then you realize like, wow, that's what I was aiming for all the time. You know, and I never realized it, or I never wanted to accept it, or I couldn't accept it until this many years later, and then to appreciate my whole career and, and where that fits in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was probably done then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you just like, spend a lot of years wrestling with more stuff, only to realize, like, wow, my career was like from 1980 to 1985, you know, and, and that's like the, there was some pretty amazing stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, there's some cool pictures that happened after, but. You know, I was really deep in it at that point. Michael, thank you so much. Oh, man, my pleasure. I'd like to thank Michael Hall's band for having us over. Remember to check out my portrait of Michael in his studio at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture, as well as on Instagram at williamjesslaird and at imageculture. This show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack and Eliza. If you like the show, help us grow by leaving us a rating and sharing it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening.